Welcome to The Word at First Pres. During the fall, we're doing a sermon series called Making Peace with the Pandemic. Each week, we're going to examine a different aspect of how the pandemic has changed our lives. We're going to reflect on our experiences and process what we've gained and lost. Thanks for listening. Our first reading today is from Luke's Gospel, the 17th chapter, verses 1 through 4. Jesus said to his disciples, Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender. And if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times a day and says, I repent, you must forgive. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Matthew 6, 25 to 34. This is a very famous scripture about worry. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your lifespan? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you've been here for the last few weeks, you know that we've been doing a sermon series called Making Peace with the Pandemic. The idea behind this series is that we're looking at all the various ways that the pandemic has impacted our lives. For some of us, we struggled in huge ways through the pandemic. It was very hard for us, very difficult. For others of us, we actually used it as time to improve our lives, to reassess our priorities. And so the goal of this series is for us to really examine how the pandemic has changed our world, how it's changed us, and how our faith can lead us towards healing. So each week we're beginning with a series of videos, it's interviews with members of our congregation. These interviews lay the foundation of what we're going to be hearing on today, or the topic that we're going to be dealing with. And as usual, every time I say this, and I hope that you will say thank you if you see the people who have done these interviews, it is hard to sit down in front of a camera and talk about your life, and that is particularly true of today. The two people who you will be hearing from is Brianna Smith who is a youth in our church, and also from Kim Nowak, who is a licensed clinical therapist. So let's hear what they have to say. 
The World Health Organization has declared coronavirus a global pandemic. More than 3,700 people have now been added to the COVID-19 death toll in New York City. COVID-19 has battered the global economy, causing the worst recession since the Great Depression. COVID has killed more people in one day than the number of people killed on D-Day. So before the pandemic, it was it was just it was just me in like fifth grade. I would deal with like a lot of like girls like making fun of me, some of that boy bullying and stuff, and that was just hard on me. So I see um, Dr. Liz, um, and she's just an amazing person that I've seen since I was a kid. We're really just like together, like we really understand each other. And then I also have a social worker at school, which I've known um, since I was in kindergarten, which was hard to say goodbye since I'm going in middle school now. So I am um, the lead therapist in a partial hospitalization program and an intensive outpatient program. So I work with patients who have uh, trauma, PTSD, anxiety, and OCD. We see patients uh, six hours a day, five days a week. Um, so my job description is I do individual like one-on-one -on -one therapy with my patients and then we do psychoeducation groups um, each day. Before the pandemic, um, our patients were coming on site to Skokie uh, where I work every day. We were doing groups in person and seeing our patients in person. And then once March hit, uh, we learned how to use Microsoft Teams within two days. <laughs> It made me feel nervous that all of this was happening and it also made me just sad that people were dying because of this and it's a really serious thing. I do not like changes so if there's any changes in life, even if it's exciting or nervous, um, it really gets to me. So we would be going virtual and then we would go in person and, and if we're in person and we have masks on, it's fine. And then we're like, oh, we go. We need to go quarantine. And um, sometimes that would be hard for me because I want to keep on the same schedule, but I know we want to be safe. Um, not seeing family and friends was also hard for me. Even my parents would sometimes say, you need to wear masks outside. And sometimes I get upset, but at the same time, I know they're doing the right thing for me, um, even though it's really hard. Oh, it was, <laughs> it was, it was hard. It was really hard. The way that we treat depression and the way that we treat anxiety is all very behavioral so we treat depression with behavioral activation so it's all about activating and doing things to change your mood we treat anxiety with exposures so it's all about going towards the things that you fear um, to work through your anxiety and all of a sudden um, I had a patient who would go play basketball at a local park and uh, the nets were all locked up right like for many of many of our patients who have anxiety, social anxiety, depression, coming to our building and seeing people in person is the only thing. That's their only social outlet. And now they were kind of back to being um, completely isolated.
sometimes emotional parts happen in school. So then that's when I go to her and talk to her and that's when she helps me through it. And then we, once I calm down, we come up with a strategy for next time. Sometimes I do yoga at school and sometimes it's just a conversation. Sometimes we'll schedule something just to talk through stuff and then we'll try strategy, we'll come back next time and maybe that strategy, strategy will work and sometimes it won't work. Another thing that I love doing is leadership roles and I do a lot of, I help kindergartners, I help um, two girls um, with just strategies of like, cause they may be having a hard time or anger issues, I help them with that. And that also helps me through stuff just because I have another thing to do just and it makes me so happy to see the kids. I, th I think the most unique thing was this was the first time that I have gone through a shared experience with my patients. Like they, you know, we'd come back after a weekend on a Monday and it's like, oh, everything's just so scary and it's so depressing and I can't do anything. And I would sit there and think in my head like, yeah, me too. You know, we are social beings. And um, I think people who their only time to get out of the house was to go to the post office or go to a doctor's appointment or, you know, people who have so few support, all of a sudden, all of that went away. And yeah, I think people just really felt alone and we saw a huge increase in substance um, substance use and a huge increase in suicide um, attempts and uh, completed suicides across our system, across our hospital system. All this research that we do group therapy because people having kind of that shared experience, maybe feeling like they're not alone, um, really like does benefit people's mental health. Humans are adaptable. Um, I I can't believe what I saw my coworkers do. I can't believe what I saw my patients do. <laughs> I can't believe what I saw my kids do and their teachers do. I think we all learned that something is better than nothing. Like that's kind of how I felt during this whole thing when we were treating our patients online and we were all really wanting to get back in person is we know this isn't the best treatment, we know we can do this better, but right now this is this is our option and something is better than nothing. Trust yourself and if you need to get help, get help. And it may be hard. You don't you don't want to just keep it all in. You need to express it out. You need to talk to somebody about it cuz that's the only way you're going to be able to get your feelings out and for somebody to potentially help you. Um, like I did. So I went to somebody for it and that helped me even though sometimes it's hard to talk through it with other people. It really helps me. So just talk it through, trust yourself and yeah. So as I think it was fairly clear from this, we are talking about some of the mental health consequences that came along with the pandemic. And I want to pick up on something that Kim said in her interview, which is she talked about how we are social creatures. Would you agree with that? We are, absolutely. We need to be around other people. It's kind of built into our genes. I've told you all in the past, I am an introvert. I like to be by myself most of the time, but even I need some time around other people. You all provide that for me. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, 
being around other people is really important, and when you're not around them, it can actually cause a decline in your mental health. And to really talk about the kind of mental decline, I want to take a little bit of time today to tell you about solitary confinement in our prison system, because there is an analogy there with what we dealt with in the pandemic. So solitary confinement, just so that we're all clear what that is, is when a person who is in prison is placed in a cell by themselves. This could be for days, it could be for weeks, it could be for months, and in some cases it could be for years. It just depends on the situation. Most of the time, a person who is placed in a cell in that way, it's because they are violent or they are seen as violent and they can't commingle with the general prison population. Now, of course, we need to kind of put a little caveat on that because today our prisons are so overcrowded that violent and nonviolent offenders are often mixed together. And because of that, if you're in a fight, even if you didn't want to be, you would be punished by being placed in solitary confinement. And so it's a very hard thing when you're in there. And I think today we think of it as, oh, well, it's a punishment for doing things wrong in a prison population. But actually, there's a whole other history to solitary confinement. Solitary confinement really began in the United States in 1829 with the construction of Eastern State Penitentiary in Pennsylvania. At the time, this was the most expensive prison in the world. It was designed so that every single prisoner could have their own individual cell. And you have to think about that, like the way that they created this meant that you had to have internal plumbing, like you had to have toilets. At this time, 1829, the White House didn't even have running plumbing at that point in time. So that shows you how advanced this prison was. The notion was that you could go into Eastern State if you were convicted of a crime and never see another prisoner in your entire time being there. Never interact with one, never see one. And the idea behind this really comes from Christianity. So there are monks, of course, in Christianity who spent a lot of time in isolation. They would say it was solitude, but we would say it's isolation. They were out there in solitude, and that really shaped and formed their spiritual identity. And so the belief was if you could take these prisoners and you could put them into solitude, that that would give them the opportunity to be able to form their, uh, their heart. It would cause them to repent for what they've done. This is where the, the term penitentiary comes from. It is to be penitent. The idea is that if you're alone long enough, you will feel sorry for the crimes that you committed. And so the notion is you would come into Eastern State and you would walk into your cell and within that cell you were alone by yourself with your thoughts and a Bible. And to that end, there was a small skylight at the top of every single cell. This was known as the eye of God. And this skylight allowed light to come in, but it was this idea that God was always watching over you. So this prison was very, very unique. First time it had ever been created, and it inspired the copycat. Basically, the blueprint of this was used in 300 prisons around the world. And the Christians who promoted this version of imprisonment did so because they were hoping that these prisoners could be rehabilitated into law-abiding citizens. The idea was really not to punish them, 
but really to help them become better people. That was really the intent. Unfortunately, that is not what happened. The vast majority of people who went into the penitentiary system ended up going insane. And the day, today, we know why that is the case. So, Stuart Grassian, he is the first researcher to take time to really look into the psychological effects of solitary confinement. And what he found among people who were placed in solitary is that they suffered from delusions, they suffered from hallucinations, from paranoia. They also were very hypersensitive to touch and to sounds. These people worked very, very hard uh, to, in, this, in the system. He, he noticed that they, were, they couldn't sleep. They were trying to sleep. They couldn't do it. Uh, they had PTSD-like symptoms, and they were prone to fits of rage, anger, and fear. And because of all of this, they ended up oftentimes hurting themselves. And I find this statistic to be absolutely damaging to this whole idea of solitary confinement, which is that they represent today 5% of our prison population, but they are more than half of the people who commit suicides in our prison system. So it tells you how cruel a form of punishment this is. And on top of this, it follows you into the world after you're done with it. So you get into solitary, you leave, and then it's very, very hard for those people to reintegrate into society. They suffer from severe anxiety and depression. They often have trouble just interacting with people around them. And oftentimes they turn to substances, drugs, alcohol to cope with being in this situation. They just have to work to kind of manage themselves, and it's hard for them. Now, why have I spent all this time talking to you about solitary confinement in our prison system? Well, part of it is that we have Stephen Bright coming tonight, and he's going to be talking to us a little bit about our, our criminal justice system and what that's like. Of course, we're going to be dealing more with the side of executions and the death penalty, and I hope you'll come. I had dinner with him last night. Wonderful man. He's a great storyteller. I'm looking forward to you all hearing him, so please come back here again at uh, 7 p.m. tonight to hear him speak because his work is super important to our country and uh, to what we believe as Christians, I think. So that's part of it. The other part of it is that when we got into the pandemic, we found ourselves in a situation where essentially, functionally, many of us were operating as though we were living in solitary confinement. I mean, just think about it for a minute, right? We were sequestered inside of our homes. We were not allowed to move about as we liked. And on top of that, we couldn't really interact with people in the way that we normally did. Now, I think initially most of us were able to cope with this. I think most of us were fine, you know, for the first few days, and maybe even for the first few weeks. But as those weeks turned into months, that's where we really started to struggle and suffer. And so a lot of what we talked about with solitary confinement is what started to happen to many of us in our homes. So as Kim talked about, she saw a huge spike, huge spike in anxiety and depression. She saw a lot of substance abuse. That went through the roof as well. And then also, what we ran into was that a lot of people were overdosing in suicides, attempted suicides, across the system. So even if you were a person who you were able to interact with people and you were able to talk to people on Zoom and, and all these things, I don't think 
we necessarily were ready for this because it's not just that you were inside. It's the fear of the fact that you could get this virus and this virus could kill you. I mean, we don't think about that as much today, right? Because we have the vaccine and we can live our lives a little more normally. But at the time when this first started, that was scary. I think that was really hard for people. And so what I think you need to realize is that everyone, and I do mean everyone, dealt with some mental fallout from this. Now, for some it was minor. For some it was more severe. But whether you realize it or not, you live through one of the worst global mental health crises ever in the history of the world. And it's going to take a lot of time to unwind that, and it's going to take a lot of time to heal from it. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how can our faith help us heal those mental wounds. And this is where I want to turn to Brianna, who was, by the way, just an amazing young woman, right? I mean, absolutely for doing that. I mean, truthfully, I don't know many adults who would sit down and be like, well, let me tell you about my mental health struggles, right? She's super open about that, and she talked about her anxiety. And she said that one of the biggest things that piques her anxiety is change. Now, I don't know if any of you all can relate to that. Does, does change cause you to feel anxiety? I would say yes, right? For a lot of us, this is true. We are not only social creatures, but we are creatures of habit. We like to do what we like to do when we like to do it on our schedule. That's what we like, right? And so when the pandemic came along and all of a sudden our routines were thrown out of whack, everything kind of just felt imbalanced. And for somebody like Brianna, who was already really struggling with anxiety, this was a really hard moment for her. Now what you know though, and what she talked about, is how she had a whole set of supports around her already. So she had her parents, remarkable parents who she has. If you haven't met her mom and dad, they're just the greatest people. She has her social worker, and then she has her therapist, Dr. Liz, right, who's there with her and works with her through everything. And they develop strategies to deal with things. So the strategies she talked about, yoga, meditation, talking to somebody, talking to an adult, whenever she felt those negative feelings, she would try to take those negative feelings and do something about them. I go to therapy as well. I spend time with a therapist. My therapist will often tell me that anxiety and depression are two sides of the same coin. So essentially, anxiety can lead into depression, and depression can lead into anxiety. Now, we talk a lot about anxiety, and there's a lot of different reasons why people have it. There's no one reason. But for me, the reason why I tend to have anxiety is that I'm thinking about things that might happen. Can you relate to that at all? So I'm thinking about what might happen in the future, what could occur. So I'm thinking about things that ultimately are outside of my control. Because when you're thinking about the future, you can't control that, right? And when it came to this virus, could you control the virus? No, you could not, right? You can't control how it spreads. You can't control how deadly it is. You can't control the economic fallout from it. And so I think for many of us, the only thing we could control was we were trying to stay healthy, were we not? And even then, that was no guarantee that you wouldn't get it. And I think that felt overwhelming to people. And for many people, because it felt so overwhelming, they fell back on negative coping skills. 
Negative coping skills would be like substance abuse. You drink too much or you start using drugs. It would be things like maybe overeating or maybe you watch endless amounts of television, Netflix, like you start to use those things because the overwhelming feeling of it, you want to numb that out sometimes, which is totally understandable. That, that happens to people. But Brianna, why she's so incredible is because she tries to find positive coping strategies to deal with those feelings. And that's what I want to take this morning from Jesus. We read this morning from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and what he tells us, if we were to boil it down, is he tells us not to worry, which I know might sound a little bit trite, right? Like, like oh, thanks, Jesus. Like, I, nobody ever told me not to worry before, but now that you said it, you know, I, I feel like I can do it. I can make it happen, right? But the fact is, is that his advice is actually quite profound if you read it in context, because it's not just don't worry. There's more to it than that. So let's take a look at what he says. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Now, of course, he has all of these things that he says before he gets to this last point in the scripture. But essentially what Jesus is telling us, which is so profound, is he says your mind has to be on the present. That's where, that's where your mind needs to be. You need to be focused on right now, what's happening right in front of you. Don't make it go elsewhere. Why? Because you can only really control what's happening right now. That's the only thing you really have control over, right? You can't change the past, can you? If you can, let me know. I want to see that time machine. So you can't change the past. That's done. You, and you can't dictate the future. As much as we might want to believe we can, we can't. The only thing you have control over is what's happening right now. So Jesus is telling us there is amazing power in the present moment. That amazing power can change the trajectory of your life, but you have to be willing to claim that power. You have to grab it for yourself. Now, part of grabbing the power of the present moment, a big part of this, is recognizing how you personally are reacting to your present circumstances. And this is where Brianna absolutely blows me away. So, Brianna, in the moment, she knows how she's feeling in the present moment. She's always aware of that. So, she's aware if she feels a high level of anxiety, She's aware if she feels sad or if she feels overwhelmed or if she feels happy. And if she doesn't feel the way she wants to feel, then she can take steps. She uses those strategies to do something about that. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring this up because the vast majority of us, and I very much include myself in this, we are not very good at being in touch with our feelings and emotions from one moment to the next. Most of us are very disconnected from those things. Now, I'm not saying you don't feel things. I mean, all of us feel things, right? But the difference is, are you aware? Are you conscious of what you're feeling in the moment? And when you're not, what happens is you tend to rely on negative coping skills. So for me, when I feel anxiety and I'm not really present to what's going on, what I tend to do is I lash out using anger. So I will come after somebody with anger, and the reason why is because I feel out of control, and therefore I use my anger to try to control the people around me. It brings me back in. Now that's not the way everybody deals with anxiety. That's the way I deal with it. Some people, you deal with anxiety. Some people feel anxiety, they shut down. 
Other people, again, they use substances or they try to numb it out some way or the other. Now, what Brianna shows us, though, is that you need to be in touch so that you can then choose, it's a choice, to use positive coping strategies. And what did she say? What did she do? She would meditate, do yoga. She would talk to somebody. And these things allowed her to work through the emotions so she wasn't using those negative coping mechanisms. For me, the way that I do this is I tend to have a mantra. And usually it's something from the scriptures, not always, but sometimes. And when it comes to this type of thing, though, anxiety, I use what Jesus talks about, where he says, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worries of its own, right? So you worry about today. Why do I do that? Because when I say that in my mind, it pushes off the future, where I'm not focused on that, and I'm like, okay, what's happening right now? What can I deal with right now? Now, I wish I could tell you that I was great at this, <laughs> but I am not. I'm not. I'm probably like 50-50. That's kind of where I am with a lot of this stuff. So half the time, I'm really in touch with my emotions and my feelings and what's happening. The other 50% of the time, I'm letting those feelings dictate my behavior. I'm reacting to those feelings. And in that 50% when I'm reacting to the feelings, that's where I really rely on what we heard Judy say this morning, which is she read a very important scripture from the Gospel of Luke. And in that scripture, he says something that is quite profound. Let's take a look. He says, occasions for stumbling are bound to come. So what is he saying? You're going to make mistakes, right? You're going to mess up. You're going to do things that you wish you hadn't done. You're going to hurt yourself and others around you. But when that happens, you can't just sweep it under the carpet. You can't just push it away. You can't say, oh, well, that happened, and you move on. No. You have to find the person who you hurt. You have to come to them. You have to repent, and you have to ask for their forgiveness. Now, why do I bring this up? Because there are two sides to this. Two sides. So one is the mental health side of it, right? Which we've all gone through. And I guarantee you, everybody in the middle of this pandemic, because of the stress and the strain that we felt, we have said and done things that we wish we hadn't said and done. Like, we've all done it. I know every single person in here has. And so when you do that, and you say those things that you shouldn't have said, and you cause a rift, you have to go repair that rift. That's part of what you're doing. Remember the rest of that scripture where Jesus is talking. He's talking about you need to go and seek out and basically find the forgiveness to make sure that that comes together. That's part of what we do as Christians. It's a big part of what we believe. And then on the other side of it, when you did things during the pandemic that you didn't hurt other people, but you hurt yourself, maybe through some of your negative coping strategies, well, there you have to forgive yourself and remember that God forgives you as well. Because the thing you don't want to have happen is you don't want to have this storm of shame and regret and anger in your mind that's just swirling around all the time. That does you no good. You need to be able to move forward from that. And so my big point that I want to make today, which is just, it's not, it's not any more complex than this, which is that we have all dealt with a lot of mental turmoil. All of us have. And I know that some of you right now are still dealing with a lot of mental turmoil. You're still struggling through it. And if you are, I just need you to hear this. Take it easy on yourself, okay? Be kind to yourself. 
Be gracious and forgiving. Remember, God loves you. God forgives you. You need to be able to forgive yourself. And if you hurt somebody, find them. Say that you are sorry for what you did and try to repair that relationship. But most importantly, if you're going to make that happen, remember Jesus' teaching. You've got to be in the present moment. You've got to be right here. You can't be thinking about the future. And I want to end with something that Brianna said. And I love the way she says this. She said, if you need help, get help. Okay? If you need to talk to somebody, go talk to somebody. Right? If it's a family member, close friend, or a professional like Kim. I mean, it was hard for me. I'll be honest with you. I've gone to therapy for a long time. The first time I went, I didn't want to go. It was not something that I really wanted to do. I'm so glad I did, though, because it changed my life for the better. Completely transformed it. And so we need to talk to people, and you need to realize that as hard as it is to talk about these things, that is what allows us to move towards healing. And Lord knows we need some healing right now. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.